What happens when we die? Do our bodies go on existing while our souls cease to be? Do our souls go on existing while our bodies cease to be? Most importantly of all, do we go on existing? Or do we simply cease to be? Questions like these have been raised and wrestled with by just about every philosophical school in just about every philosophical tradition. And Thomism is no exception. Indeed, these very questions lie at the heart of what is surely the single biggest ongoing debate in Thomistic philosophy. For roughly the last quarter century, philosophers in the Thomistic tradition have been arguing over the status of the human soul after death. More specifically, they've been arguing about whether the separated soul is a person. Is it me? Today, I'd like to both present and weigh in on that debate. To that end, this talk will proceed in five parts. First, I'll canvas and motivate the core positions in the debate. Second, I'll identify three kinds of questions and two types of disagreement that are relevant to it. Then, in sections three, four, and five, I'll do my best to answer the relevant exegetical, systematic, and speculative questions, respectively. So, section one, overview of the debate. In debating the status of the separated soul, almost all contemporary Thomists align themselves with one of three core positions. Corruptionism holds that the separated soul is not a person. Survivalism holds that the separated soul is a person. And what I'm calling incompletionism holds that the separated soul is an incomplete person. To motivate each of these views, I'd like to present what I take to be a few central arguments in favor of each one of them. I won't discuss those arguments in detail, nor will I even take much time to explain them. I'd be happy to do that during Q&A. My goal is simply to show that none of the three core positions is obviously right or obviously wrong. So, without further ado, why be a corruptionist? Here are three arguments. The simplest argument, I die. Dying is corrupting, so I corrupt. If you want something a little bit more metaphysically robust, consider the muriological argument. No proper part is identical to the whole of which it is the part. But the soul is the proper part of a human person. Therefore, the soul is not identical to the human person. Or consider the essential part argument, and this is different. Nothing continues to exist after losing one of its essential parts. At death, the human person loses one of its essential parts. Therefore, at death, the human person does not continue to exist. These are by no means the only arguments in favor of corruptionism, but I've picked these because they draw attention to what I consider to be two important aspects of the corruptionist position. First, corruptionism is deeply intuitive, as I think the simplest argument makes clear. Second, it's also metaphysically robust, as the muriological and essential parts arguments make clear. What about survivalism? Why be a survivalist? Here again are three arguments. The proper operations argument. You can also call this the quacks like a duck argument. Whatever engages in operations proper to a human person is a human person. The separated soul engages in operations proper to a human per person, like knowing and loving. Therefore, the separated soul is a human person. But also consider the moral argument. The only thing that God punishes for my wickedness and rewards for my good deeds is me. Yet God punishes the separated soul for my wickedness and rewards the separated soul for my good deeds. Ergo, the separated soul is me. 
Lastly, we have the intercessory prayer argument. Only persons can be the agents and objects of intercessory prayer, but separated souls can be the agents and objects of intercessory prayer. Therefore, separated souls are persons. These, again, are by no means the only arguments in favor of survivalism. But like the basic arguments in favor of corruptionism, these survivalist arguments draw attention to two important points. First, the corruptionists do not have a monopoly on metaphysical foundation. The proper operations argument makes that clear. Second, the debate also has ethical, eschatological, and ecclesiological ramifications, as the moral and intercessory prayer arguments make clear. The third position, which I'm here introducing, I think, for the first time as a distinct category, is what I call incompletionism. This attempts to split the difference between corruptionists and survivalists. Rather than thinking of personhood as binary, i.e., rather than thinking that something either is or is not a person, the incompletionists hold that personhood is graded or comes in degrees. Thus. They say that it's possible to be a person completely or perfectly or simpliciter, but it's also possible to be a person incompletely, imperfectly, secundum quid. On this view, the corruptionists are right to deny that the separated soul is a person simpliciter, but they're wrong to deny that the separated soul is a person secundum quid. Likewise, the survivalists are right to affirm that the separated soul is a person secundum quid, but they're wrong to affirm that it is a person simpliciter. Why prefer incompletionism? For the last time, I offer three arguments. The inference to the best explanation argument, or the IBE argument, um, and this is a little bit meta or methodological. It goes like this. If the hypothesis that the separated soul is an incomplete person best explains what corruptionism and survivalism get right and wrong, then we should adopt the hypothesis that the separated soul is an incomplete person. But the hypothesis that the separated soul is an incomplete person does best explain what corruptionism and survivalism get right and wrong. Therefore, we should adopt the hypothesis that the separated soul is an incomplete person. If that's too methodological for you, here are two first-order arguments for incompletionism. The criteria argument. If the separated soul meets Aquinas' three criteria for personhood, but in an incomplete way, then the separated soul is an incomplete person. The separated soul does meet Aquinas' three criteria for personhood in an incomplete way. Therefore, the separated soul is an incomplete person. Lastly, and most technically of all, the hoc aliquid argument. If the separated soul is an incomplete hoc aliquid, an incomplete this something, then the separated soul is an incomplete person. The separated soul is an incomplete hoc aliquid, ergo, the separated soul is an incomplete person. These arguments in support of incompletionism may have less intuitive force than the arguments in support of corruptionism and survivalism, but what they lack in intuitive force, they make up for in nuance and attention to detail. Incompletionism requires the participants in the debate to read Aquinas' corpus both widely and carefully and to draw connections between passages that the survivalists and the corruptionists have typically left unconnected. So what position should we adopt? What view should we hold? Should we be corruptionists or survivalists or incompletionists? Before we can answer that, there's one bit of ground clearing and stage setting that remains to be done. And we'll do it, I think, in the way that Aquinas would have wanted, by drawing some distinctions. So, section two, kinds of questions, types of disagreements. One aspect of the contemporary debate over the status of the separated soul that has often been commented upon, but rarely been clarified, 
is the question of what the debate is actually about. That may seem like an obvious place to start, but it turns out the fog of war is as real on the intellectual battleground as it is on the physical battleground. And the reality on the ground is that we seem to have a moving target. So I want to try to clear the fog of war. Let's start by distinguishing three kinds of questions and two types of disagreement. The three types of questions I want to distinguish are as follows. First, we have exegetical questions. Exegetical questions usually take the form, did X think P? So in our case, the exegetical question would be, did St. Thomas think that the separated soul is a person? This is a historical question, and its answer involves a close reading of the texts with minimal commentatorial intervention or deviation from what the thinker in question, for us, Thomas, actually said. Second, we have systematic questions. Systematic questions usually take the form, should X have thought P? So, in our case, the systematic question is, should St. Thomas have thought that the separated soul is a person? This is something of a mixed historico-philosophical question, for its answer involves drawing out the implications of a thinker's more basic philosophical and theological commitments in order to see whether a proposition or its negation is entailed by those principles. Third, we have speculative questions. Speculative questions take the form, should we think P? Or, more simply, is P true? So, in our case, the speculative question is, should we think the separated soul is a person? Is it true that the separated soul is a person? This is a purely philosophical question. Like the systematic question, its answer involves drawing out the implications of more basic principles and commitments in order to see whether a proposition or its negation is entailed by those principles. But in the case of speculative questions, the principles we start with are adopted because they are true, not because they were held by a historical thinker. When we consider the application of these question types to our present topic, it's easy to see why the debate over the status of the separated soul seems to have a moving target. If the answer to the systematic question is yes, but the answer to the speculative question is no, then Aquinas leads us away from the truth, not towards it. That is not a welcome result for the Thomist. Likewise, if the answer to the exegetical question is yes, but the answer to the systematic question is no, or vice versa, then Aquinas's thought will be inconsistent, also an unwelcome result for the Thomist. Thomists will be vindicated in their Thomism only if the answers to all three questions align. As such, corruptionists, survivalists, and incompletionists all have a vested interest in showing that Aquinas held their position, or at least that he didn't deny it, that their position follows from Aquinas's more basic principles, or at least is consistent with them, and that their position is true. That's the gold standard for the debate. Now that we've distinguished these three kinds of questions, I also want to distinguish two types of disagreement, namely substantive disagreement and verbal disagreement. A disagreement is verbal if it's a disagreement over how we use our words or what we mean by the words that we use. A disagreement is substantive if it's a disagreement over the things meant and referred to by our words. So, suppose, for example, that philosopher A and philosopher B are engaged in a debate over materialism. 
If philosopher A defines materialism as the view that only material things exist, while philosopher B defines materialism as the view that only material things exist at the fundamental level of reality, then their disagreement is verbal. It's a dispute over what we should mean by the word materialism. Moreover, it's possible that their disagreement will be merely verbal. For if they both think that only material things exist at the fundamental level of reality, but that there are immaterial things at some non-fundamental level, then philosopher B will say that materialism is true, while philosopher A will say that materialism is false, even though philosopher A and philosopher B agree about all the relevant facts on the ground. There will be a substantive dispute only when A and B disagree about the relevant facts. So for example, whether there are only material things at the fundamental level, or whether there are immaterial things at some non-fundamental level. This distinction between substantive and verbal disagreements cuts across our threefold distinction of questions. So we can have verbal or substantive disagreements about exegetical questions. We can have verbal or substantive disagreements about systematic questions. And we can have verbal or substantive disagreements about speculative questions. As we proceed, we should pay attention to what sort of disagreement is taking place at the level of each question. Section three, the exegetical question. Did Aquinas think that the separated soul is a person? Of our three questions, this is the one that strikes me as having the most straightforward answer. It's also the question on which we find the most widespread, though not universal, agreement. All corruptionists, all incompletionists, and even some survivalists admit that according to Thomas Aquinas, the separated soul is not a person. Nevertheless, to the extent that there is disagreement over this question, that disagreement is substantive. I'm not aware of any survivalist who means something different when he or she asserts Aquinas thought that the separated soul is a person from what any of the corruptionists mean when they deny it. So it's a substantive question. What did he think? The definitive text from the exegetical point of view can be found in Aquinas's commentary on St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Aquinas interprets Paul um, when he claims that if we have hope in Christ only in this life, then we are the most miserable of all men, as putting forward an argument for the resurrection. So according to Aquinas, the argument goes like this. If the Corinthians hope is not a hope in the resurrection, then they will be the most miserable of all men. But if they are the most miserable of all men, then their faith is in vain. Thus, if there is no resurrection, the Corinthians' faith is in vain, which, of course, it is not. Yet, Aquinas thinks there's an obvious objection to this argument. Namely, that resurrection isn't required to render the sufferings that Christians undergo in this life worthwhile. We don't need resurrection in order to avoid being the most miserable of all men. All we need, Aquinas' imagined objector argues, is the guarantee that our souls will experience bliss after death. As long as my soul enjoys the vision and love of God forever, any pain or suffering I undergo in this life will be worth it, regardless of resurrection. Aquinas' reply goes like this, quote, man naturally desires his own salvation, but the soul, since it is a part of the man, is not the whole man, and I am not my soul. Thus, even though the soul 
attains salvation in the afterlife, nevertheless, I, or any man, do not. Close quote. Now, usually in the face of passages such as these, the standard exegetical move on the part of the survivalist is to distinguish between identity and constitution. So they'll grant that the separated soul is not identical to the person, but nevertheless insist that it does constitute the person. The idea is that in this present life, I am constituted by the union of my body and my soul. After death, but prior to the resurrection, I will be constituted by my soul alone. And after the resurrection, I will once again be constituted by body and soul together. Now, that interpretive strategy does work to undermine the corruptionist interpretation of many passages in Aquinas' corpus. But it doesn't work here. The reason is because what's doing the argumentative work in the passage that you've got is not the non-identity of the separated soul and the person. What's doing the argumentative work is the fact that the bliss experienced by my separated soul is not my own. If survivalism were true, and my separated soul were to constitute my person, then its bliss would be my own. That's the whole point of the moral argument for survivalism. And it's precisely that point that Aquinas denies. This passage also poses an exegetical problem for incompletionists. For Aquinas does not say that I am incompletely my soul or that I am only my soul secundum quid. He simply says, I am not my soul. More importantly, if incompletionism were true, then my soul's post-mortem bliss would nevertheless be my post-mortem bliss, even if we tacked on a little incompletely rider. Now, the incompletionist might interpret Aquinas' argument as saying that the complete person desires his own salvation, but the soul is not the complete person, ergo, um, the salvation of the soul is insufficient for the salvation of the complete person. But now the danger of eisegesis is strong. And so I find it unsurprising that most incompletionists simply grant the exegetical point to the corruptionists. So, at least with respect to the exegetical question, the laurel goes to the corruptionists. Section four, the systematic question. Regardless of whether Aquinas did think that the separated soul is a person, we can still ask whether he should have thought that the separated soul is a person. In other words, is the personhood of the separated soul entailed by his more basic philosophical and theological commitments? Among survivalists, there's a diversity of opinion. Most, like Eleanor Stump and James Dominic Rooney, think that the answer to this systematic question is yes. They claim, for example, that Aquinas' commitment to biblical truths, like the truth of the parable of Dives and Lazarus, entails that the separated souls, like the separated souls of Dives and Lazarus, are, or at least constitute, those two people. Otherwise, we couldn't make sense of the parable. When faced with the charge that this would render Aquinas' thought inconsistent, for it would make the answer to the systematic question yes, while the answer to the exegetical question is no, they either respond, as Stump does, by doubling down on the exegetical point and just insisting that pace all appearances, Aquinas was explicitly a survivalist, or, much more plausibly to my mind, they respond as Rooney does, which is by saying that the disagreement is merely verbal. In other words, when Aquinas denied that the separated soul is a person, they say he was using person in a technical, metaphysically perspicuous sense. But when survivalists affirm that his more basic philosophical and theological commitments entail survivalism, they are using the word person in an ordinary, everyday, metaphysically non-perspicuous sense. There are, however, 
other survivalists, like Mark Spencer, who admit that the answer to the systematic question is no. According to Spencer, I think most plausibly of all, some of Aquinas' basic commitments are compatible with survivalism, but others are not. Spencer gives the example of Aquinas' metaphysics of essence. Now, Spencer does not think that this makes survivalism untomistic. Rather, he thinks that survivalism will be Thomistic to the extent that it adopts all of the principles uh, that Aquinas holds that are compatible with survivalism. By way of summary, then, we can say that some survivalists think there is no tension between their answers to the exegetical and systematic questions. Some survivalists think there is merely verbal tension, and some survivalists grant and concede that there is substantive tension between their answers to those two questions. Among corruptionists, the answer to the systematic question is far simpler, no. According to them, Aquinas should not have thought that the separated soul is a person, given his more basic commitments. When survivalists appeal to texts like the parable of Dives and Lazarus, corruptionists respond by appealing to Aquinas' practice of what's called synecdoche, or the exchanging of names between parts and wholes. Thus, even though St. Peter's separated soul isn't really St. Peter, we can and do rightly call it St. Peter, since it was the most important and noble part of him when he was alive. Likewise, in response to the moral argument, Corruptionists maintain that the punishment or reward of the soul for the deeds of the person is perfectly consistent with Aquinas' general theory of reward and punishment. As his treatment of original sin makes clear, Aquinas thinks that persons can be and are penalized justly for sins that they have not personally committed. A fortiori, an enduring part of a person can be justly penalized for the personal sins of that person. As such, all corruptionists hold that there is no tension between the answers to the exegetical and the systematic questions. To my mind, however, the most important development and the most interesting development on this systematic front is the challenge posed to corruptionism by Daniel DeHaan and Brandon Dom, the leading incompletionists. Their challenge is simple. Show me a full metaphysical account of the separated soul that is both true to Aquinas' principles and substantively different from the account given by the incompletionists. The reason they throw down this gauntlet is because they are convinced that any authentically Thomistic account of the separated soul must be one that acknowledges in fact, even if not in name, the reality of incomplete persons. Why are they so confident? Dahan and Dom begin their argument for incompletionism by identifying what they take to be Aquinas' three core criteria for personhood, namely subsistence, rationality, and completeness. They then go on to identify five relevant kinds of completeness operational completeness, existential completeness, formal completeness, suppositor completeness, and essential completeness. As a, a side comment, I mean, we're clearly rediscovering Bar Baroque scholasticism, and I love every bit of it. Um, now, the subsistence criterion, according to Dom and DeHaan, requires that the person be a hokaliquid. It requires that the person be a concrete individual that neither has um, its being in another nor is predicated of another. The rationality criterion specifies that this hokaliquid must have a rational nature. The operational completeness criterion stipulates that it be able to engage in non-defective activities. Existential completeness requires that it be existentially independent, so it not depend on another for its essay. Formal completeness 
requires that it possess its proper formal, formal principle. Supposital completeness requires that it be the proper subject of accidents. And essential completeness requires that it possess a complete essence. It's got to have its full nature. Armed with these criteria, Dahan and Dom then take metaphysical stock of the separated soul. As they rightly point out, no separated soul is ever just a separated soul. Each one is an immaterial form that stands in, nest, in a nested series of act potency composition relations. So the separated soul is in an act potency composition relation with its own proper octus ascendi. Also, with accidental qualities like intellect and will, and finally, with proper operations like knowing and loving. Now, since the separated soul is a hokaliquid, it satisfies the subsistence criterion. Since rational operations are proper to it, it satisfies the rationality criterion. Since it can engage in perfect acts of knowing and loving, it has operational completeness. Since it exists through itself, it has existential completeness. Since it lacks matter but doesn't lack form, it has formal completeness. And since it's the subject of accidents, it has suppositive completeness. The only point on which it falls short then is essential completeness. For the separated soul is not in possession of the complete nature proper to it, namely the nature of a human being. Thus, the separated soul completely satisfies criteria one and two, and incompletely satisfies criterion three. As such, Dahan and Dom hold that Aquinas' principles make room for, even require, what can justly be called incomplete persons. And any Thomist who denies this will either be quibbling about words, they think, or substantively departing from the metaphysical picture that they've just laid out, which is authentically Thomistic. Thus far, no corruptionists have picked up the gauntlet thrown down by the incompletionists. Until now. I offer three objections. My first objection is that Dahan and Dom have cooked the books. Their list of criteria for personhood is both redundant and arbitrary. Moreover, it's redundant and arbitrary in precisely the way that it needs to be in order for the separated soul to score high on the personhood test. What Dahan and Dom call existential, suppositive, and formal completeness, all of which they attribute positively to the separated soul as marks in its favor for being a person, all of those are cases of double counting. For existential, Completeness and suppositive completeness are already part of what they call the subsistence criterion. Whereas formal completeness is already included in what they call the essential completeness criterion. When we get rid of these redundancies, the result is minus three on the separated soul's scorecard. Their list of criteria is arbitrary because there are other perfectly plausible measures of completeness that they have just left out. For example, if we're going to include formal completeness, why not include material completeness, such that a thing is materially complete if and only if it has all the elements of its proximate or proper matter? If we did that, minus one for the separated soul. Likewise, if we include operational completeness with respect to instances of operations, why not also include a kind of operational completeness that has to do with kinds or types of operations, such that a thing will have type operational completeness if and only if it can engage in all the various kinds of activities and operations characteristic of its proper nature. If we include that as a kind of completeness, then the separated soul can't do it because there are plenty of embodied activities proper to human nature that the separated soul cannot engage in. 
What these considerations show is that the seeming clarity introduced by Dahan and Dom's list of criteria might in fact be functioning like the moment of misdirection in a magic trick. For Aquinas never gives an itemized list of criteria for personhood, and he certainly doesn't give their itemized list. What he does do is clarify and defend Boethius's definition of a person as an individual substance of a rational nature. And when Aquinas does that, he makes it clear that the separated soul is not an individual substance. You have this quote on your handout. The soul is a part of the species of man. Thus, even if it were separated, it could not be called an individual substance, i.e. a hypostasis or a primary substance, since it would still retain the nature of, a, of being able to be united with a body. Likewise, neither a hand nor any other part of the man is called an individual substance. As such, neither the definition nor the term person belong to it. Now, Dahan and Dom will surely reply by interpreting Aquinas as saying that the separated soul fails to satisfy the completeness criterion with respect to essential completeness, and so can't be called a complete person. But that's not what Aquinas says. What he says is that the separated soul doesn't satisfy the definition of a person, and it fails to do so precisely because it is not an individual substance. To shift our attention away from what Aquinas says and focus it instead on how the separated soul subsists and the kinds of completeness that it does have is simply to mislead us. That's a first objection. I imagine Daniel and Brandon will not be impressed. Here's a second. Suppose, for the sake of argument, that their criteria are correct. Suppose, too, for the sake of argument, that if something fails to satisfy those criteria perfectly, it won't be a complete person. But if it satisfies them imperfectly, it will be an incomplete person. Granting them all of that, they still haven't given us a principle for determining what degree of perfection or criteria satisfaction is required for incomplete personhood. My own power of reason satisfies some of the criteria. My hand satisfies others. But I am certain that Dahan and Dom and no other incompletionist um, would refuse to call my power of reason or my hand incomplete persons in any sense. And if that's right, then, incompletion, then incompletionism is doomed to be ad hoc. Why should we think that some of the things that partially satisfy the definition of person are incomplete persons, while other things that partially satisfy the definition are not? There is no principled reason for making such a distinction. And I see no reason to think that that kind of ad hocery follows from Aquinas's basic philosophical and theological commitments. Here's a final objection. Suppose the criteria are correct. Suppose, too, that we ignore all the items that fulfill fewer of the criteria than the separated soul does. There's still a counterexample. For the human nature of Christ is individual and concrete, is rational, has operations proper to it, is not existentially dependent in the manner of an accident or part, and is both formally and essentially complete. The only thing arguably it lacks is the completeness characteristic of a supposit as Daham and Don have described it. As such, the human nature of Christ has as much, if not more, of a right to be counted as an incomplete person than the separated soul does. And that means incompletionism entails semi-Nestorianism. For it entails that in Christ, there is a complete divine person and an incomplete human person. Just speaking for myself, I don't think semi-Nestorianism follows from Aquinas' basic philosophical and theological commitments. 
and you shouldn't either. Before moving on to the speculative question, I'd like to address one final point regarding this debate between incompletionists and corruptionists. It has to do with the kind of debate that we've been having. One interpretation is that it's merely verbal. Where Aquinas had just one term, person, the incompletionists introduced two terms, complete person, which corresponds to Aquinas's person, and incomplete person, corresponding to a set of metaphysical or ontological items that Aquinas didn't have a word for. Then, on behalf of corruptionism, I critiqued their notion of incomplete person for being inadequate as a bit of ideology. But when it comes to the metaphysical facts on the ground, all parties are in agreement. Though plausible, I think that interpretation is wrong. The disagreement between us is not merely over whether the notion incomplete person is coherent or adequately defined or metaphysically useful. The disagreement is over whether the notion of an incomplete person actually carves nature at the joints. Does it elucidate and illuminate an irreducible part of Aquinas' ontology? Or does it rather encourage us to think of a perocidens collection of items as if they were per se unified, and to attribute to things in the world properties that they do not in fact possess? I think the answer is the latter. Lurking behind that judgment is a further suspicion. I suspect that there is a substantive difference between incompletionists and corruptionists in regard to how we understand Aquinas' metaphysics of essence. The judgment that something can be operationally, existentially, formally, and suppositally complete, while nevertheless being essentially incomplete, so their judgment, strikes me as a dangerous depreciation of the central role played by essence in Aquinas' metaphysics. In contrast, I'm inclined to say that essential incompleteness will entail a kind of operational, existential, and suppositable incompleteness, since operation follows being and being follows essence. Insofar as the essence is, as St. Thomas says, that in which and through which a being has being, any change in modus essentiae will result in a corresponding change in modus essendi, which in turn will result in a corresponding change in the modus suppositi, which in turn will affect the kinds of operations that the supposit can engage in. And I take it that whether or not a change in essence has this cascading effect is a matter of metaphysics, not semantics. Section five, the speculative question. Regardless of whether Aquinas should have thought that the separated soul is a person, should we think that the separated soul is a person? Is it true that the separated soul is a person? Of our three questions, I think this one is the hardest to answer. It's hard to answer not only because, as we saw in section one, there are plausible arguments supporting each of the three core positions, but also because each position comes with a bullet to bite and a bitter pill to swallow. And that, I think, is something that we all need to be upfront and honest about. No matter where we may fall in the debate, and no matter how good we may think our reasons are for holding the positions that we do, we should not delude ourselves into thinking that we can leave the fray unscathed. Victory comes at a cost. So, what are the costs that each side needs to pay? The bullets each side needs to bite. The bitter pills each side needs to swallow. In the case of corruptionism, I think it's the intellectual and affective reprogramming, so to speak, that the position requires of its adherents. Every time I turn to a saint in prayer, every time I look forward in hope to the beatific vision, every time I offer mass for a deceased relative, I have to do so with a little asterisk attached. 
Because it's not really the saint I'm turning to. It's just a part of the saint. It's not really me who will experience the beatific vision after I die but before I rise. It's just a part of me. And it's not really my relative that I'm offering mass for. It's just their soul. And I think that any corruptionist who isn't caught up in a breathtaking exercise of self-deception will have to admit that that just feels wrong, even if we think it's right. In the case of survivalism, the bullet we have to bite is death. When I grieve the loss of a loved one, the grief I experience is categorically different than the sorrow of saying goodbye, even when I know I'm saying goodbye forever. Likewise, when I experience the dread of my own oncoming death, that dread is categorically different from the kind of fear I experience in the face of, say, an amputation. It's an existential angst, and we call it that for a reason. But if I'm a survivalist, I have to say that that phenomenology is misleading. For I have to say that the precise thing I fear and grieve is impossible. No matter how I account for the badness of death on this view, it will remain true that death is simply not as bad as we think it is. And I think that any survivalist who isn't caught up in a breathtaking exercise of self-deception will have to admit that that just feels wrong, even if we think it's right. In the case of incompletionism, the bitter pill is me. In all my ups and downs, all my trials and triumphs, all my rises and falls, the one unchanging constant is me. I can lose my hand to an accident, my heart to a girl, my cool to an insult, my confidence to a criticism, my memory to old age. What I can't lose in the midst of it all is myself. If I'm an incompletionist, I have to give up my confidence in all those claims. For it turns out that I can be both complete and incomplete, not just in my properties, not just in my parts, not just in my principles, but in my very person. And I think that any incompletionist who isn't caught up in a breathtaking exercise of self-deception de self will have to admit that that just feels wrong, even if we think it's right. And it is, I think, that feeling of wrongness, that last feeling of wrongness, that lies behind Mark Spencer's critique of Dahan and Dom um, on the side of the survivalists. As Spencer says, I think compellingly, the real debate is not over whether the anima separata meets technical criteria for being a person. The real debate is over whether I have naturally knowable reasons to hold that I will survive death. What I most want to know is whether I, in the sense of this person, this unique, incommunicable, irreducible whole, this most perfect thing in nature will survive death. That is, I think, indeed the question. And the answer is no. I cannot be who I am without being what I am. And what I am is not my soul. Thus, as Aquinas said so long ago, I am not my soul. Spencer disagrees. Severing the necessary connection between essence and person, he advocates a partly Thomistic, but largely Platonic metaphysics, according to which it is natural for persons to have different essences at different times i.e., it is natural for persons to hold their essences contingently. 
He does so in part for theological reasons, in part for phenomenological reasons, and in part to avoid having to add a little asterisk to his prayers. For my part, I'm willing to accept the asterisk. It's simply not natural for the essence of something, especially the essence of a person, to change. Essences aren't contingent. And I'm willing to revise my attitudes toward the dead to preserve that central metaphysical truth. I also think of the three bitter pills, that's the one that's easiest to swallow. If we have to pick between getting our attitudes toward souls in the afterlife wrong, getting the badness of death in this life wrong, and getting the irreducibility of the person in both lives wrong, choosing one is the best option. That's because answering the question of whether the separated soul is a person requires us to speculate up to and beyond the limits of what is naturally knowable. The veil of death has indeed been torn open by the resurrection of Christ, but it hasn't yet been fully parted. As such, even when viewed under the light of revelation, what lies beyond the veil remains obscure. It remains mysterious. I do want to treat the souls of the dead as persons. I can't help but think of them as if they were persons. But I also think that might be because my heart and my head are reaching out to realities they can't yet touch reaching into realms they can't yet enter, and in so doing are getting caught in the tangle of a tattered veil that has yet to fully fall. If I have to choose between making a mistake about things that are better known in this world or dimly known in the next, I'll choose getting the better known right every time. Because of this, I am certain. It's the small mistakes on this side of the veil that lead to the big ones on the other. Thank you.